Okay, as we uh, turn to God's word again, let's just bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to him, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it does see right to the very core of our being, Lord. Your word of it says of itself that it's living and powerful and divides between, Lord, that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And Father, this morning I pray that you do challenge us, Lord, but also encourage us. And Father, as we leave here today, may we know that not only have we been in the presence of the living God, but that, Lord, that you've taught us from your word directly. Um, so, Lord, just give us ears that are open, Father, hearts that are ready to receive. Uh, Lord, just take my words now. Uh, Father, use this time uh, to instruct your saints that we may be the witnesses that you've called us to be, to bring glory to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in our journey through the Bible this year, We've come as far now as the Acts of the Apostles, which really details for us the birth of the church. Now, a prelude to the book of Acts is Luke 24, verse 49, which reads, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So this is after the resurrection. Jesus now speaks to the disciples. They're not sure what's going to happen next. Jesus is about to return to the Father. And he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for this promise that he's telling them about here. The promise of my father. And he says that as a result of them, if they wait there, they're going to be endued with power from on high. Now this is the fulfilling of two promises of Jesus. Firstly, in John fourteen six, Jesus had said that he would send another comforter. And we see that this promise here that we're given in Luke is really e- echoing that. But also, there's another promise. Jesus said that we would bear fruit. That's the reason that we've been appointed as believers and appointed into the vine of which he is, the vine, the true vine, that we're to bear fruit. But Jesus also said in John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. Well, how can those two be reconciled? That if we are to bear fruit and then without Jesus, we can do nothing. Well, the answer to that is in what Jesus is saying here, that by waiting in Jerusalem, the disciples and subsequently the whole of the church would have this ability and this possibility of being endued with his power from on high. You see, without Jesus, whatever you do will not bear fruit. And whatever you try and do without Jesus also will not be sustainable. One of the biggest problems we experience in our Christian walk is that we try and do things because we're enthusiastic. And it's not good enough. It doesn't work. You know, enthusiasm is not enough. And we soon come to a point where you know, all that enthusiasm runs out and we just become weary. And this is the, the point that Jesus tries to make. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, the contrast we find in Philippians 4, um, verse uh, uh, 15, I think, or verse 13, I think, um, which says that in Jesus, through Jesus, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So, on one hand, without Jesus we can do nothing, but with him we can do all things. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is how that transition occurs, how we get to that place. Now, Jesus, as I said, promised that he would send another comforter. We said previously that the the Greek uh, language has got various words, a little bit more descriptive than in the English. And the word here is alos, it's another of the same kind. So just as Jesus was, so will this comforter be who Jesus promises is coming. And Jesus says he'll be the spirit of truth. The world is not going to know him, but he will indwell the believer. But also, and probably most significantly, we're told that the work of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus. 
Now that really is very key, as we'll see. Because the question we should ask then is, how will the Holy Spirit testify of Jesus? Well, the answer is by the fruit that we mentioned a moment ago that is produced in the lives of believers. That is how the Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus, by the things that God does through you and I. And that's what we're going to look at as we move into the book of Acts. Now, one other verse I want to just look at before we get into the study is in John 14, verse 12. Jesus said there, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Okay, now sometimes Jesus just says, I say unto you. Sometimes he says, verily, I say unto you. This time it's, verily, verily, I say unto you. This is like, okay, everybody, listen up, pay attention. Are you ready? Okay, this is just... And then he says, He that believes on me... The works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now this has been very misunderstood through the history of the church. Because some people say, well, what's Jesus saying then? That we're going to do greater miracles. Some people think that. You know, you think of the miracles that Jesus did, raising Lazarus, raising the dead, healing incurable diseases, conquering sin and death. Oh, well, hang on a minute. We're not going to do greater works than Jesus, surely. Not miracles anyway, if that's what this is to be understood as. So clearly we need to think differently about this. Is it saying that we're going to do more miracles? It'll be greater in quantity. Well, in one sense, of course, because throughout the history of the church, miracles have been done. You could argue that. But everywhere Jesus went, he did miracles. Everywhere you and I go, we don't do miracles. So pro rata, that doesn't apply either. So what does this verse mean? Well, look, greater works than these shall he do and note why because I go to the Father Jesus links that which we will do directly to his returning to the Father something was going to happen as a result of his returning to the Father that will allow us to do greater works now the words in Greek that we have here is not uh, simeon which is supernatural signs that's not what Jesus is referring to but works which is mesion which is and he's saying greater in degree and then the word works is ergon or toil uh, as in effort or occupation so the question we would ask is what was Jesus's occupation or work what did Jesus do well If we look in John's Gospel, we see a number of occasions where this is used. In John 5, verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows shows him all things that he does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So, this is the first time this word in Greek, ergon, is used in John's Gospel. So, we've got these works that are from the Father as a witness to the people. John 5, 36, we read, Jesus saying, but I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So, quite simply, the works were not of Jesus, but they were of the Father, and they were to be a witness. John 10.25, again, Jesus answered and said unto them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Again, the works that Jesus did were to convince the people that he was the Son of God, that God manifest in the flesh. You know, quite simply, works equals witness. That was the purpose of these works. John 10.37 says, um, If I do not the works of my Father, believe, not, uh, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me... Believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So Jesus was really saying, 
regardless of your thoughts about me or your initial reaction and so on, he's pointing people to the works that he was doing as evidence that he was God, God manifest in the flesh. Again, works equals witness. What was the purpose of the works? Quite simply, to witness to the fact that Jesus was God. Now that's our framework, our foundation in a sense, as we move into the book of Acts. Because you'll see that that's exactly what God has for us. And we are to do greater works. In in as much as we are to bear witness that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Let's uh, jump into the book of Acts then. So... The book of Acts, the author is one of the few things that are are not disputed by the critics. Um, Everybody seems to be quite comfortable that Dr. Luke wrote this. Now, many would say that uh, Luke was a Gentile. We commented before when we were looking in uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, that Luke most definitely seems to be Jewish. Uh, He accompanied Paul on his journeys and so on. Um, this is intended, the, the book of Acts, as a continuation of Luke's gospel. It's written to this most excellent, the title we have in the book of Luke, uh, this most excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus just simply means lover of God. And commentators have said that in one sense that means it's addressed to all of us. Well, of, of course it is. All scripture is given for inspiration and it's, it's there for our learning and benefit and so on. But this seems to be more than just a, um, uh, just a, a title in that sense. It's, it's a title of position uh, that he has. Now, why did he require Luke to give him such a detailed account? Because that's what we have here. And it's an account that's in writing. Well, as we said when we looked at Luke, the reason for this seems to be that these were the official trial documents that accompanied Paul on his trip to Rome. As you get to the end of the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul will appeal to Caesar. And as a result of that, that appeal would be accompanied by appropriate documentation. And it seems that uh, whether the trial documents themselves or the the precursor to that, the the documents from which the trial documents would be drawn up, um, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, seem to be such. Um, Quite simply, the book numerous times explains that the Jews and not the Christians were the ones that were responsible for the uprisings, for all the unrest, all the problems. And this, of course, was why Paul had been arrested. The Roman officials we see in the book are always seen in a positive light as well, which is another indicator. So I'll leave that with you. It's just an idea. It's not something we're told conclusively in Scripture, um, but it seems to fit uh, as you look through and go go on through the study of the book of Acts. Now, traditionally the title is the Acts of the Apostles. Well, it's okay, but there's only two apostles that really feature in the book. There's the ministry of Peter, and that takes us through the first 12 chapters, and 56 times we have his name recorded. And then the ministry of Paul. Now, uh, we have his name recorded from chapter 13 through to 28, 126 times. We've got Stephen, Philip, John, two James, Barnabas, Ananias, and John Mark are also mentioned. So, although we do see some of the workings of the apostles, really the title, the better title for the book is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That helps us to understand what's going on. It's what the Holy Spirit was doing. Now, to give you a brief outline of the book, uh, in chapter 1, we see of the ascension, uh, the promised return of Jesus. Chapter 2 gives us the birth of the church, uh, the day of Pentecost that we're familiar with. Chapter 3 and 4, we start to see this witnessing 
We were talking about a moment ago, start to happen in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 5, as the church begins to grow, we move into chapter 6, and persecution comes with it. Chapter 7, of course, we're introduced to the ministry of Stephen very much as he confronts the Sanhedrin. But as a result of that, this persecution causes the Jews to be scattered uh, from Jerusalem. Chapter 8 gives us Philip and the Ethiopian treasurer. A very interesting um, situation as to what led to this and why this uh, very important Ethiopian official was in Jerusalem at that time anyway. Um, Seemingly, Isaiah would indicate that the Ethiopians have a very special gift to present to the Messiah. And that may have been why he was there. We can talk about that some other time. Chapter 9 details the conversion of Saul, who became known as Paul. Uh, In chapter 10... We have, obviously, the account of Peter and Cornelius. And then we see the witnessing to Judea and Samaria in chapter 11 through 14. Now, it's in chapter 12 and 13 that we get a kind of crossover point as it moves from looking at Peter and his ministry to looking at Paul. And that leads us into the first missionary journey of Paul. We then get in chapter 15, this council meeting they have in Jerusalem. We'll talk about this in a moment when we get there. And then in chapters 15 through 21, we have the second and the third missionary journeys of Paul. Chapters 21 and 22, we see an outcry against Paul. Um, Again, firstly, in 23, we see the details before the Sanhedrin, but then he's taken before Governor Felix in chapter 24, between Governor Festus in chapter 25, and then finally before King Agrippa in chapter 26, And then after that, we see Paul make his journey to Rome, which kind of rounds out the book 27 and 28. Many commentators will tell you that the book of Acts is not finished. Because we're carrying on that work of the Holy Spirit. The the Lord is working through us. And really, this whole process that we start to see started here is just continued in our lives and the work that God does through us. So... I quite like this uh, summary, a slightly simpler breakdown by J. Vernon McGee. I'm really drawn from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And it says that really the breakdown is that the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 through 7. Then we have the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Judea and Samaria. That chapters 8 through 12. And then we have the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the apostles to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's chapters 13 through 28. Okay, and that kind of takes us through to the end of the book. Now, the book is important for a number of reasons. In one sense, it does complete what some scholars have referred to the Pentateuch of the New Testament. So we've got the four Gospels and then the book of Acts. Just as the Old Testament starts with the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. So we have these five books that really set us up and lead us into the New Testament. It gives details, though, that are not found anywhere else in the Scripture, including some fascinating insights into the Old Testament. Without which it would make uh, certainly some uh, puzzling conundrums of some of the details that the Old Testament gives us. Um, But the book of Acts gives us some incredible information. It does, of course, record, record the birth of the church, which was something that had been hidden in ages past. And now this is revealed. It is, of course, our only reference for church life, how church should be, how church should be done. You see, a lot of stories sometimes put in the early church fathers. 
you know, people from the second and third century, so on. And they're often quoted. Now, some of the things they say and some of the things they did were very good. But we need to be aware that even by the end of the first century, the church had become corrupt. There were problems. There were issues that needed to be dealt with. You know, if you look at Paul's letters on their own, Paul writes to the Corinthian church to deal with problems. Jude and John write to, in their epistles um, to Christians and believers and churches to address the problem with heresy creeping in. So we need to be very careful. And of course, an understanding of Matthew 13, chapter, uh, verse 24 through 30, is vital. Because that tells us that the church is not this lovely place where everybody's a believer. Unfortunately, some people have that, that view, that mindset that, you know, if, if you go to church, you're a Christian. Well, Matthew 13, Jesus makes very clear that there are wheats, that there is wheat and there are tares. Amongst the wheat, there will be tares. And within the church, there will be those who are not believers. And there will be those, of course, who are true believers. And we do ourselves a disservice and others if we make the assumption that everybody in church is a Christian. You know, uh, it's not going to be that way. Jesus makes that very, very clear. The other thing, of course, we find with the book of Acts, it is a verifiable document attesting to the integrity of Scripture. Now, when we were looking at Luke, we quoted from a number of sources, looking at the authority uh, and the accuracy of uh, Luke's writings. Um, so much detail in here. Uh, and again, the, the historical uh, archaeological discoveries have now attested to um, that which we see here. We know that we can trust everything that we're looking at in the book of Acts. Now, interestingly... We've got some models that we can see, which just speaks of the design, of a, a design way outside of, of human ability here. I don't think Luke intended this necessarily. But in the first 12 chapters, we have Jerusalem as the center. Peter is the chief figure. The gospel goes out to Samaria. The word of God is rejected by Jews of the homeland. Peter subsequently is imprisoned, and then, of course, he's released and goes on to witness. And then we also see a judgment on Herod. Well, then we kind of switch over and the Paul section of Acts from 13 to 28, Antioch becomes a centre. Paul now is a chief figure. The gospel goes out to Rome. The word of God is rejected by the Jews again, but this time the ones who are dispersed around that particular region in the Middle East. Paul becomes imprisoned. Again, later to be released to go on to witness. Um, and then we see judgment on the Jews. So there's definitely a parallel in the, in the structure here. Interestingly, there's also a parallel in, in just the content. Uh, Peter's first sermon we read of in chapter 2. Chapter 3, we have a lame man healed. Uh, Peter encounters a sorcerer by the name of Simon. Who interestingly was uh, a descendant of the Magi. Uh, if you do a little bit of study, you'll see that. Clearly he'd gone off the rails. Um, but then we see that the influence of Peter's shadow is sufficient to heal people. Other people are healed by the laying on of hands. And Peter subsequently in chapter 10 becomes worshipped. We then find in chapter uh, 9 also Tabitha, uh, this individual, this girl, is raised from the dead. Uh, and then in chapter 12, Peter imprisoned. You parallel that with the second section of the book where you get Paul's first sermon in chapter 13. Another lame man is healed. This time a different sorcerer by the name of Elimas, uh, is com uh, Paul confronts. Um, and rather than the influence of the shadow, we now have the influence of Paul's handkerchief that is responsible for bringing healing. Um, there's again laying on of hands and others are healed. Paul is worshipped. Uh, again, obviously uh, doesn't allow this, but nevertheless. Um, we have another individual that's raised from the dead. This young man, Eutychus, who falls out of this upper story window as Paul is speaking all night. 
and then finally we see Paul in prison. So even within the structure of the book, uh, we see kind of fingerprints of God's design. Okay, let's kind of move into the, the kind of the content as we see, and we're just going to follow the ministry of Peter through just to start with. Now, of course, we're aware that Peter is reinstated at the end of John's gospel as a disciple. You remember that Peter had denied Jesus three times. Well, at the end of John's gospel, Jesus reinstates him. Three times he asks that question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then, effectively, Peter is um, now back in his position, seems to be leading things. And we get to the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and preaches, and we know that 3,000 are added uh, to the church in that one day. Well, Peter subsequently heals a lame man. Uh, He and John are arrested and they're told not to preach in the name of Jesus. That doesn't, of course, stop them. But as a result of this, Peter and John follow Philip, following the um, persecution that arises after Stephen's uh, uh, death. Um, They end up going down into Samaria. And again, we're told that many believe there. Peter ends up going to Lydia and then on to Joppa. Uh, He raises Dorcas from death en route. And then we get to this incredible situation where Cornelius, this centurion, this Roman, has a vision up in Caesarea. Now Peter's down in Joppa at the time and he has equally a vision from the Lord. And so Peter ends up going to uh, see Cornelius. We'll talk a bit more about this in a while. But it's an incredible situation. Basically Peter gets there and says, okay Cornelius, I'm here. What did you want to, to ask me? And Cornelius says, I don't know. You've come to speak to me, haven't you? And there's that kind of like awkward, embarrassing moment. And suddenly Peter clicks. And we'll look at that in a little bit more detail in a moment. But as a result of this, um, Peter realises that the gospel is now to go to the Gentiles. And Peter then reports this to the church of Jerusalem. They accept that the gospel is for the Gentiles too, but not quite as we think. We'll comment on that in just a moment. Peter then is arrested, as we're aware, miraculously released. Um, And then finally Peter we see testifying at the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And that really is where we see the last of Peter in the book of Acts. So, Picking up the ministry of Paul, well, we know that he was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Originally, his name was Saul, and he came from Tarsus. So, uh, although not born in Israel himself, obviously, um, seemingly had a a Jewish mother, um, and raised in Tarsus. But we find from uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 3, that Paul was educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, one of the most venerated rabbis of the day. And... A little bit later, uh, we find that Paul is holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. And Paul then subsequently becomes a violent persecutor of the church. Paul was steeped in tradition. He knew the Jewish laws. He knew the Jewish scriptures very well. And he was so offended by this gospel that he thought was just undoing everything that he stood for. So he starts persecuting the church. He gains permission to go and uh, capture and persecute those believers that have now gone down to Damascus. But on the road, something dramatic happens and he meets Jesus himself. And then subsequently he's blinded and then Ananias comes to see him. Uh, no doubt a little bit uh, uh, on tender hooks as he's uh, coming to see this, this well-known villain. Um, but the Lord has told Ananias to go to be faithful. And Ananias goes and Paul's blindness is healed. And Paul is subsequently baptised. Well... Paul stays there for a little while, but then we find that for three years, Paul goes down to Arabia. Why? What was in Arabia? Well, one thing we know was in Arabia is Mount Sinai. Paul goes back to, in a sense, 
his rock, which was the law. That was what he'd grown up on. That was the foundation. And there, seemingly, Paul, over this three-year period, goes through this process of undoing everything that he thought he knew. As he's confronted with the law, as he's no doubt face-to-face with Mount Sinai down in Arabia, suddenly realizing that he can't keep the law. doesn't matter how good he is. doesn't matter how much effort. And of course, when we look and we get into the book of Romans, we'll see there how Paul says how the law slew him. He realized that he could not keep the law. Paul, when he writes to the Galatian Christians, will write there that the the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So we'll look at all of those things as we go through the subsequent books of the New Testament. But a dramatic moment and period of time in Paul's life. Uh, Paul then, after this period of time, comes back to Damascus, still not ready for ministry. You know, the need doesn't necessarily constitute the call. That's something Oswald Chambers once said, and it's always stuck with me. Paul, at this point, seemingly wanting to get involved in ministry, wanted to go and do this thing for the Lord. So we said earlier that about that enthusiasm. You know, it's not enough. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul, as a result of this, and, and many commentators feel that this was a um, a, um, uh, an attempt in the flesh on Paul's part he ends up having to flee he's forced to flee and he's kind of let down out of the, the, the walls of the city in a basket uh, he goes uh, to see Peter uh, Barnabas intru- in- introduces him um, to all other suspicious believers as well and he talks to Peter and James specifically um, but then after two weeks he smuggled out of Jerusalem as well and he ends up going up to Tarsus and he's there for another ten years or so now it's interesting, during that 10 years, Paul doesn't get into ministry in the way that we necessarily think. For 10 years, Paul takes on an occupation. He became, begins to start tent making. You see, prior to this, Paul had been trained to be a rabbi. That's what he was going to do. Well, now Paul has got to find a new job. And so he starts paying his way. He becomes a tent maker for this 10 years while he's there. Of course, he's still wanting to preach and so on and we're, we're aware that, uh, that others seemingly come to the Lord through his ministry there but there's no real uh, dramatic preaching or so on in this time and certainly it was unknown to the believers in Judea at this point well then Barnabas heads up there finds him and uh, they spend a year together from that point then teaching and uh, witnessing to the Lord and finally then uh, we find that Saul and Barnabas um, and Titus as well come down to Jerusalem they bring relief to the church in Jerusalem there by this point the church in Jerusalem is struggling um, so they bring some supplies down there and some offerings that have come from some of the other churches and that's when Paul meets with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and that's when things really start to move and from that point Paul will then begin the first missionary journey so just backtracking Jerusalem becomes initially the center of operation for the Christian church but once Stephen is martyred God kind of forces their hand and they end up being scattered and they go all sorts of different directions many of them though travel down and end up in Antioch and there's a number of Antiochs um, but this is the one that you can see uh, which is on the east coast of the Med um, and uh, just kind of just below Turkey um, and so they travel to this place um, and they're preaching of course at this point only to the Jews now some also come from Cyprus and from North Africa. They start preaching to the Gentiles. But you see, what they were preaching was very much that you need to become a Jew, not you need to become a Christian. And so we'll see how this all gets challenged and changed. We'll look at this in just a moment. Jerusalem then sends this, uh, 
um, invitation to Barnabas, who was a trusted leader, to go and investigate what's going happening down in Antioch, just to kind of get a picture of what's going on down there. And he goes and gets Saul from Tarsus, and then they go and they stay and they teach there for some time. And then this strong Antioch church, as we said a moment ago, ends up sending money and relief down to the church in Jerusalem. So uh, we just see this shift in a sense from Jerusalem to Antioch as the strategic headquarters of the Christian church as it starts. And then finally from Antioch, the gospel goes out all around the world from that point. Antioch is an interesting place. You've got Barnabas, who was a Jew from Cyprus. Uh, Simeon, who was also referred to as the Black, came from Africa, from what scholars uh, think. Uh, Lucius, from, from Cyrene, from uh, North Africa. Um, Manaean, uh, foster brother to Herod Antipas. And obviously Saul as well, uh, later to become Paul. So a very mixed group of people at the, the church at Antioch. Okay, let's go through and look at some highlights then in the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 1 because there's so much in these opening verses, not just to set the scene, but really uh, lead us all the way through. So we read in the opening verse, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. I love this. God doesn't say, just take it on faith. Just just believe. You know, we're given by Jesus many infallible proofs. Our faith is not a faith that is just a, uh, I hope it might be right. I think it might be. You know, I feel in my heart. You know, it's no, this is something that can be intellectually defended as well. And so, again, these many infallible proofs. We're told that Jesus was seen of them 40 days. And speaking of the things, just note this, pertaining to the kingdom of God. For 40 days, Jesus spoke to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that point in just a moment. Verse 4 tells us, And being assembled together with them, commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. Now we've seen already this verse that we looked at in Luke, this promise of the Father uh, that they were to tarry in Jerusalem. Again, jumping back into Luke, we read this. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? Now that would seemingly be the Lord speaking of judgment that's to come. But verse 50 of Luke 12 says... But I have a baptism to be baptized with, speaking of that which Christ had to accomplish on our behalf. But then he says, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? Jesus is saying, I'm constrained for now until it be accomplished, until I've gone through that which I must go through. Obviously his death and his resurrection and so on. In what way was Jesus, the Son of God, constrained? Well, prior to the resurrection prior to the ascension jesus could only be in one place at one time but after jesus had ascended to the father and then sent the holy spirit jesus could be anywhere and multiple places at the same time through the work of the holy spirit and jesus now again you think of what jesus work was we've already identified it was to bear witness of who he was and our work is exactly the same. Let's just move on. We read 
And then Acts 1 verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. So Jesus implies straight away here that there is a more superior baptism, a greater baptism. So we have John's baptism, baptism of repentance from sin and so on, but there's another baptism, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now this leads to lots of controversy in the church, this idea of baptism in the Spirit. What does it mean? Now some people think that it occurs at the point of conversion, others suggest that it occurs sometime after conversion. I think the key question is what, not when. It's not when does it occur, but what is it? Because if you understand what it is, well then the when question is answered as well. We need to understand what the role of the Holy Spirit is. We're told in John's Gospel particularly that he's to be in the world. He's to bring conviction of sin. He's to indwell the believer. And we're told of this comforter, this teacher, again in John's Gospel. He's also, as we've seen, and in many ways this is our key point, to bear witness to Jesus. Those two points that he's to indwell the believer and he's to bear witness to Jesus are really the things that we see in the book of Acts. Now the question then, is baptism the same as indwelling? Because whenever somebody becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells them. We're told by Paul that that indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance. If you don't know that the Holy Spirit is in your life, then you need to question whether you are saved. Because it is a guarantee of our salvation that the Holy Spirit will indwell us. Well, Jesus in this scripture we're looking at here says that the baptism of the Spirit that he's referring to is analogous to John's baptism. What was the purpose of John's baptism? Well, with John the Baptist, people were one, convicted, two, they repented, and three, they were been baptized as a testimony to what had taken place. So, Baptism, quite clearly, was an outward sign, or if I may put it this way, baptism was a witness. It was a witness to others, and of course is a position marker for the individual. If you are baptised as a believer, it's a defining moment in your life, as you're giving way to passing the the, the old things behind you, uh, all things becoming new and so on, symbolically. What is the purpose of this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, again, we saw that in Luke twenty four forty nine, that we would be endued with power from on high. This is what Jesus promised. So this empowering was to come after they'd received the Holy Spirit. Because in the upper room, Jesus breathed on the disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. That's the point, if you're going to look at it from a, a theological, technical point of view, that's the point the disciples became born again when they were born of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit came and dwelt them but Jesus says that there would be something yet in addition to that when when they waited in Jerusalem they would be endued with this power so this empowering would come after they were born again after they'd received the Holy Spirit now there's different fillings if you like of the Holy Spirit to use that uh, expression that we read of in scripture. We have the upper room we just mentioned, Pentecost itself, and then there's subsequent fillings that we read of through the book of Acts, where people are filled and refilled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in dwelling, 
takes place at conversion. That's very clear. This is the promise we read of in Scripture. We read in the book of Hebrews that, that God the Father is the Father of spirits. And when we go back to the Garden of Eden with the whole situation with Adam and Eve, we died spiritually. Anybody that is not born again of the Spirit of God is, in a sense, the walking dead. But when we are born of the Spirit of God, we have a new life. And rather than our old spirit, which died, say, back in the Garden of Eden, effectively, you know, we are spirit, soul, and body. And spiritually, we are reborn when we are born again. Now, that's the indwelling. That's when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer. So once only thing from that which we see in scripture it doesn't need to happen again but the baptism for ministry or power in a sense for ministry we see a number of times in the old testament where the lord would come upon an individual for the work of ministry we see it with gideon we see it with joshua moses uh, those that were responsible for building the tabernacle we see it with elijah elisha and we see it uh, with daniel david and many many others that we could cite and we see refillings where the Lord fills them with his power for this work of ministry. It's been kind of equipped before, but it's very true. It's not how much of the spirit you have, it's but how much of you he has. And really for us it's a case of surrendering, allowing God to have his way with us. So we see then a threefold function of the Holy Spirit. This word in the Greek, this para. We see in John 14, uh, 16, is to draw alongside, to bring conviction. That's one of the works of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus said he would do. He would bring conviction of sin. Now, anybody in this world is in a place where the Holy Spirit can draw alongside and can bring conviction of sin. But then we have this N. There's just two letters in the Greek, N. It's indwelling. And again, that's the, the privilege of believers. But then epi... Another Greek word is the coming upon. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to fill us with his power for the work of ministry. Verse 6, we carry on. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, get what's going on here. Jesus is talking to them about the Holy Spirit. And they suddenly kind of switch gears. They change the conversation. And they ask him, well, Lord, what about Israel? What are you going to do about restoring the kingdom? Now, just picture the scene. They're heading out to the Mount of Olives at this point in Acts chapter 1. And they didn't know at this point that Jesus was about to depart. And one of the last times that they were here together, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He was hailed as the king. The last actual time they were there, Peter was ready to take the kingdom by force. He gets his sword, he chops off the high priest's ear. And so now they're asking, is it now? Are you now going to overthrow the Roman occupation? Is now the time for the kingdom? You see, that's the mindset they had when they asked this question. You see, the Jews' expectation and the disciples' expectation was that the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. Peter, of course, in the garden we just mentioned, he was looking to build the kingdom. The sons of Zebedee, they're asking about the position they'll have within the kingdom. But they're thinking of a very earthly, real kingdom. And of course it's the driving horse behind many biblically illiterate ventures throughout history. This idea of building the kingdom now. 
The Crusades, for a start, could be quite easily put into that category. You know, the Catholic Church down through the ages, from the third century onwards. This idea of you know unifying the church and the state, and the church has rule and authority over the state. And of course, we've got a wave of modern charlatans that are talking now about building the kingdom, getting everything ready. And of course, it's very much fueled by the fire of amillennialism, the idea that there won't be a literal millennium, that we're going to get things ready, that we're going to turn the world around for Jesus. And amillennialism in itself is one of the major contributors to anti-Semitism because it says that God has finished with the Jews. There's no more plan or purpose for Israel. Well, of course, that's totally contrary to Scripture. Notice what they ask him. Will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? You see, they're referring to the kingdom where the Messiah will rule over the house of Israel on David's throne. (laughs) For 40 days, Jesus had been speaking to them. I said to make note of this a moment ago. Verse 3, about the kingdom of God. But their interest is regarding the kingdom from heaven. Matthew uses that term, the kingdom of heaven, or literally the kingdom from heaven. No other of the gospel writers use that term. Matthew uses it repeatedly. Jesus said unto them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. You see, the issue is timing, not the fact that the event will take place. Jesus doesn't say, No, guys, you've got it all wrong. There won't be a kingdom now. Not a, a, a literal kingdom. You know, that actually all the promises of Israel have now been devolved. That the church will take responsibility from here on in. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's not going to happen. He says it's not for you to know when it will happen. There's a 1845 references in the Old Testament to the fact that Jesus Christ will rule on this earth. A physical reign. 17 books give prominence to that event. There's 318 references in the New Testament. And there's 216 chapters that give prominence to that event. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament give prominence to that event. For every prophecy of Christ's first coming, there are eight of his second coming. This is a big issue. And it's not, in a sense, wrong. And I'm glad the disciples asked this question because we get a bit more insight because they did. You've only need to look at books like Isaiah, and you see throughout. Isaiah chapter 9, for example. We're told there, for unto us a child is born. A child was born through Mary. Unto us a son is given, because he was the son of God given for us. That sentence deals with both the humanity and the deity of Christ. We're told the government shall be upon his shoulders. Again, that's talking of a literal reign. His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there should be no end upon the throne of David. That's a literal earthly throne. And upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. There's no question of a literal earthly throne yet to be fulfilled. This is what the disciples were asking. Again, he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. In other words, the kingdom will be restored, but you're not to focus on that. That issue is in the Lord's power. And then notice, but ye, in other words, Jesus is saying, Excuse me guys, I was in the middle of trying to tell you something, 
Because we now go straight back to talk about the Holy Spirit. You see, they interjected in, into, or interrupted really what Jesus was saying to them and asked about the kingdom. Will it be now? And he said, it's not for you to know. What you're to concentrate on, and for you and I, what our focus should be, is this. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. Now there you are, that's the key. That we're to be witnesses unto Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, and so on. So Jesus just focuses them on the task in hand. And our mandate is not to rule the world for Christ, but to be witnesses unto him. You see, the purpose of the power and our mission is simply to be witnesses to who Jesus is. And we're told that it's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you or I, you and I this morning are in that latter bracket. Chapter 2. There's something there that we just need to highlight. And we're not going to spend obviously as long on every chapter. just want to just cover some things um, that are real uh, importance to us as, as a church today. Acts 2, of course we have Pentecost and so on, and we're familiar with those events. But in verse 42 we read that they continued steadfastly. The word steadfastly just implies it's an ongoing steadfast determination. In the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now, this is the, the, the basis of our Christian faith, the basis of our Christian walk, the foundation of the early church and really for us too. These are the majors of the Christian faith. Now, we might choose other electives, if you like, as part of our own discipleship program, but these things are mandatory. So again, the four things, the Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, a Breaking of Bread, and Prayer. And it's, interestingly, a lot of what is focused on within the church today is not in this list, but these are the things that Jesus says really matter through his word, through uh, Luke who's recording this for us. And, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' teaching is really what it's saying. Barnes makes this comment, One evidence of conversion is a desire to be instructed in the doctrines and duties of religion. You know, interesting how often we meet people who are not interested in doctrine. Oh, I, I don't want to talk about, you know. Why? If you're born again, if we've been given the word of God, why wouldn't we want to know what the Bible says? What is doctrine? Well, one definition said, it's a creed or body of teachings of a religious, political or philosophical group presented for acceptance or belief. Or dogma is another way of putting it. It's really the foundations and non-negotiable fundamentals of what we believe. It's what defines us as Christians. So the big question is, who gets to decide? Well, I like this quote from Joe Foch. He says this, If it is taught in the book of Acts and expounded on in the epistles, it becomes church doctrine. I think that's a great kind of one-line summary of what doctrine really is. Give you an example of what's not doctrine. Washing each other's feet. Now you might be pleased to know this isn't doctrine and we're not going to this morning bring bowls around and get you to do this. You see, because that's not taught in the book of Acts. It's not expounded in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus makes the point in John thirteen fifteen that it was given as an example. I mean, the principle is exactly the same. We may not bring a bowl around this morning and get you to wash each other's feet, but we are to serve each other. We are to humble ourselves before the Lord and before each other and to be willing to serve each other in ways that maybe the world wouldn't do. 
You see, doctrine is not a consensus of popular opinion, nor is it that which seemed best at that particular time and in that particular culture. It was that which was taught by the apostles, who in turn had received it directly from Jesus. Thus, it was not man's opinion about how things should be done and what should be adhered to. It was the, fund- it was the fundamentals of the faith as given by Jesus for his church. Now these include, now these are some of the highlights really for us. The way of salvation being in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. The infallibility of the word of God. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus willingly surrendered himself to the will of the Father and was offered as a spotless lamb to make atonement for the sins of the world. The imminent return of Jesus to establish his kingdom, we were just speaking about, and subdue his enemies. That this kingdom will be a literal political kingdom on earth and a continuation of the throne of David. That God is preeminent in all things and by his foreknowledge he has chosen and appointed those who are the heirs of salvation. Yet at the same time every individual has free will to accept or reject salvation through Jesus Christ. That God is the creator of all things. That we should love and serve one another, not placing ourselves above another. Now, in the 21st century, church doctrine, i.e. teaching regarding the fundamentals, has become almost a taboo subject in churches. It's seen as divisive. But why? It shouldn't be that way. Many churches and ministers are content to just lay aside areas of doctrine for the sake of what they call unity. I love the example Barry Smith used to give, the late uh, evangelist from New Zealand. He used to talk about two cats. He said, and tying them together by their tails. Now, this is probably something that Bob would approve of, not being a big fan of, uh, of cats. But you tie two cats together by their tails, hang them over a clothesline. He says, there you have union, but you do not have unity. You know, and that's what a lot of the church is striving for. They're getting union, but they're not getting unity. Unity only comes when it's based on the word of God and Jesus Christ. Those who undermine the doctrine of the apostles are seen as being open-minded and tolerant, even forward-thinking. But those who stand for the truth, like us, are often seen as being dogmatic, being troublemakers, intolerant, divisive, living in the past and so on. And so it shouldn't really come as any surprise that Paul actually forewarns that that would happen. Now, moving on. Fellowship is another key part. Our fellowship should be edifying. When we come together, it should be faith building. David's view of fellowship is interesting. He says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise thee. And he also says, let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Really, Fellowship, we see from these things, is something that um, should combat the world's influence. It should keep us spiritually alert as we talk to each other. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen speaks of iron sharpening iron. We also should provide support for each other, bearing each other's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. And should keep us in check, confessing our faults to one another. And praying for one another that you may be healed, James five sixteen. 
You see, if doctrine is the backbone of fellowship, it's really the lifeblood of our faith. When we come together, the center of our conversation should be Jesus. And it should be a great time to mutually encourage each other. Communion, another one of these four that are listed. What's the purpose of it? Why is it there? Well, of course, it's an act of remembrance, a celebration of Christ's victory. Rooted, of course, in the feast of Passover, instigated by Jesus in the upper room. But really, it's a regular spiritual health check. That when we come together and celebrate the communion together, we should examine ourselves. And that's one of the the key aspects of communion. And one of the reasons I believe that Jesus has given us this most important of, of celebrations that we're to remember. You see, again, if doctrine is the backbone and fellowship is the lifeblood... Communion is very much our immune system. And we need to keep it in check so that we don't allow other things to come in. We should always keep coming back to the cross. Prayer is the final one. Of course, if we ask most Christians what are the two things they find hardest to do, they'll be read the Bible and pray. You know, it's the same thing, isn't it? You know, we struggle with those things and yet we know they're important. Uh, Bounds in one of those books on prayer says uh, the little estimate we put on prayer is evident from the little time we give to it you know, prayer is so important for us Adam Clark says this they continued in prayers knowing that they could be no longer fruitful than while they were upheld by their God and knowing also that they could not expect his grace to support them unless they humbly and earnestly prayed for its continuance so if doctrine is our backbone fellowship is the lifeblood communion our immune system well then prayer is the heartbeat of our faith jumping forward to chapter 7 of the book of acts we see of course this situation with stephen this incredible uh, address he gives to the, the jewish leaders he was really his message wasn't a new heresy it was the fulfillment of their scriptures he shows how israel had rejected their deliverer the first time he cites joseph rejected the first time by his brothers but accepted the second. Moses rejected the first time, but the second time accepted. And he's just about to tell them that Jesus was rejected the first time, and he doesn't get to the conclusion because they stone him. They know exactly where he's going. But this leads to the dispersion of the church. And I love this quote from the Whitecliffe Bible Commentary. It says, Up to this point, the apostles had given no evidence of a purpose to carry the gospel into the world, but have stayed in Jerusalem, witnessing to the Jews. Luke now relates the beginning of expansion of the church throughout Judea and Sumeria, which was occasioned by the persecution that arose around Stephen. This expansion was accomplished not by the vision and purpose of the church, but by the providential act of God in scattering the believers. To explain this persecution, Luke first relates how Stephen came into a position of prominence as one of the seven and goes on. So this becomes a major event that God uses. God sometimes shakes us up, doesn't he? Moves us out of our comfort zone. We now then get into the second part of the book of Acts. This is the Lord Jesus Christ at work by the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Judea and Samaria. And this takes us from chapter 8 through to chapter 12. And here we're going to see the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch, a son of Ham, in chapter 8. Conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a son of Shem, in chapter 9. And then conversion of of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a son of Japheth. In chapter 10, as you see the gospel going out to the whole world. Now, Acts chapter 10 is such a pivotal chapter in the Bible. There's a number of chapters that, that really stand out. We've said before in um, 
Second Samuel chapter 7, a really key chapter in understanding uh, the, the, the way scripture works, the breakdown of things. But this chapter also so important. Because we see the unveiling of this mystery that had been hidden in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to read all of these scriptures for the sake of time. I encourage you to look at them after. Matthew 13 deals with and speaks of something that had been hidden, that people in the past had longed to see. Their eyes had been hidden, but now Jesus says, is revealed to you. We get to Ephesians, and Paul speaks of this mystery that had been hidden, but now is being revealed. Again, we carry on in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, the first few verses there, really speak of this revelation that Paul had, of that which had been previously hidden. And he carries on. And let me just read from verse 10 of Ephesians 3. He says, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, it's not the church's job to explain God's wisdom to the principalities and power. Some read it as that. But rather, God's wisdom is manifest or is seen by the existence of the church. The whole of God's plan through the ages is fulfilled through the church. The fact that the church exists is a demonstration of God's unfathomable wisdom. And Acts chapter 10 is pivotal in understanding this mystery. See, the mystery was revealed to Paul. Paul's commissioned to take it to the Gentiles, but there was something that had to be settled first. And it's very much what we see Paul speak about in Galatians chapter 2. He speaks after this 14 years. He says, after the 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And the question he goes and presents at Jerusalem is, have I run in vain? I've been preaching to the Gentiles. Should I have done this? And this is the question that's brought to the leaders there. And they realize, picking up verse 7 of Galatians 2, but contrarized, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that ruled effectively in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And basically, then they get this go-ahead to go and preach. Now, why is it that Peter at that point was so willing to say, yeah, go preach to the Gentiles? Well, it's because of that which we see. Now, the depth of the problem is very clear when you start to look at these scriptures. You see, the Jewish mindset was that Gentiles were dogs. They were fuel for the fires of hell. I hope that doesn't upset you this morning. That's the way they viewed you. The only way to God was through Israel. That's what they thought. So is either become a proselyte or burn. And even the early Christians had this mindset that you'd have to convert and become a Jew or there was no way. Of course, Israel were preoccupied with their own righteousness and importance and so on. It was so ingrained, even on the apostles, that it took a supernatural work and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to undo that tradition. They'd forgotten that it was to be through them that blessing was going to come to the world. Let me just read a quote from Adam Clark. It says, This prejudice would have operated so as finally to prevent them from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, had not God, by a peculiar interposition of his mercy and goodness, convinced Peter, and through him all the other apostles, that he had accepted the Gentiles as well as the Jews, 
and will put no difference between the one and the other, purifying their hearts by faith and giving the Gentiles the Holy Spirit as he had before given it to the Jews. The means which he used to produce this conviction in the minds of the apostles are detailed at length in the following chapter. This is chapter 10. Paul, after his trip to Cornelius, as he's suddenly brought face to face with this, says, But in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted of him. Peter realizes, it says in verse 34, that God is no respecter of persons. I can't underline how important this chapter is for the future of the church and the fact that you and I today can meet as we do and we can accept Jesus so freely. We don't have to become Jews or so on. Chapter 13 really starts to see the beginning of Paul's missionary journey. I'm just going to take you quickly through these uh, and then we'll draw to a close. So we see, of course, Paul and Barnabas uh, sent out by the Antioch church. John Mark goes with them. They come to Cyprus, to Salamis first. They walk across the island to Paphos. That's where they encounter this false teacher by Jesus, who's a friend of the governor. That man's struck blind and then the governor becomes a believer. They then head over to the mainland, uh, they, they arrive, but then John Mark leaves and returns home. It becomes an issue of dispute later for them. And they then go from there, and Paul preaches um, these various places they're going to, from Perga up to Antioch, it's a different Antioch. And Paul preaches, and the Jews become very jealous of Paul's preaching, and they start to stir up opposition. So you know, they stay there for a while, uh, but this gentle, Gentile plot eventually forces them to move on, and they come down to Iconium. Uh, and then they get down to Lystra and there Paul heals a cripple at this point they're hailed as gods of course they reject it Um, enemies then come down from Antioch where they'd been previously and Iconium they're almost killed they're dragged out of the city and they flee from there to Derbe and many more disciples are won and at this point you think well let's go home guys no what they then do is retrace their steps they go back the same way to the same places even though They knew they could be risking their lives. There was a job to do. There were people to be saved through the preaching of the gospel by their bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And so eventually they come back and they report everything to the church at Antioch. And there's a great celebration. You know, one of the reasons we have a sharing time at the beginning of our service is precisely that. You've been out in your missionary journeys during the week. And we should come together and share what the Lord has done. And we should encourage each other with what the Lord has been doing. In chapter 15, there's a council meeting that takes place in uh, Jerusalem. And again, it's this whole situation about uh, the Gentiles and so on. Um, and interesting that Peter turns this around and says that we shall be saved, the Jews, even as they. And so they, they come to this conclusion that there's a number of things there to do. Uh, one of the things for Gentiles, though, they say, uh, but we write to them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Uh, because of time, I'm going to skip that bit. But I'll leave those in the notes as to what those things actually refer to. Um, but interesting, there are certain things that even for us Gentiles are prohibited. And you'll understand why if you do a study and go into those. Let's just pick up the second missionary journey. So Paul again leaves from Antioch this time. Um, there's a big dispute over, over whether they're going to take John Mark. So Barnabas and Paul now separate. And Barnabas goes off with Mark uh, to Cyprus, and Paul takes Silas, and they come off into Galatia. Uh, they come to Derby, where he'd previously been, then up to Lystra, and that's where Timothy, this young Timothy, joins them. And uh, they carry on again up to Antioch. Um, and they there reveal, they publish the decisions of the Jerusalem Council regarding the Gentiles and so on. 
Paul then tries to go into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit blocks him. God had another plan. And that night Paul has this vision of this man from Macedonia urging him to come. Some think that that was Luke. Uh, interestingly, just as an aside, because it's at this point when he gets to Troas that Luke then joins them, and the language in the book of Acts changes. Rather than Paul talking about them, it becomes us and we, because now Paul, uh, Luke now joins the, the party. Well, then they sail for Macedonia. <clears throat> Paul delivers a, a girl who's a medium for evil spirit. That causes a bit of a protest from her owners. Their, their source of revenue is uh, taken away. They're put in prison, and that's where then in Philippi this jailer is converted. And then they travel down to Thessalonica. They're there for just three weeks. Uh, interesting what Paul talks about. We'll look at that when we study Thessalonians. Paul convinces some Jews and some Greeks. There's a riot that's uh, stirred up, and then they leave. They come to Berea. They get a better reception, but this mob from Thessalonica, Thessalonica come down on them again. So Paul then sets off down for Athens, and Silas and Timothy then stay behind. They join up with him later. When he's in Athens, Paul speaks on Mars Hill, and speaks to the philosophers and so on there. Now, Paul then departs for Corinth, and Silas, and this is where actually he writes First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, Silas and Timothy bring news from Thessalonica. And Paul writes uh, the, the letters we just mentioned there. Uh, and despite the Jewish opposition, they stay there for about two years. Finally then, they go back up and they sail to Ephesus. Um, and they resist, resisted those that wanted him to stay longer. He knew that the Lord was calling him back. And they travel back to Antioch uh, via Caesarea and Jerusalem. And that brings us then um, to our third missionary journey now. So the final missionary journey of Paul. And so after spending some time in Antioch, Paul revisited the churches in Galatia and uh, Phaedra in order. Paul makes Ephesus his base for the next three years. Uh, the disciples of Apollos receive the Holy Spirit and a church is founded there. But then there's some problems going on in Corinth. And Paul plans to go to Macedonia. He sends Timothy and Erastus ahead uh, that they might visit Corinth. Paul's a little bit worried about the immorality he's hearing about in the church there. Um, and three members of the Corinthian church bring a letter to Paul. It's got these various questions that he's asked, um, and the problems seem to be greater than Paul had thought. And that leads to the writing of 1 Corinthians. Paul then writes and sends 1 Corinthians, uh, trying to address these problems. And then Paul hurries himself to Corinth, and the visit is apparently a very painful one, and Paul is uh, severe when he gets there. Paul returns to Ephesus and then writes a severe letter to them. We don't seem to have, uh, we've lost record or copy of that. Um, Titus takes that letter to Corinth. Paul arranges to meet Titus again at Troas, uh, urgently to get news of the situation of what's going on. So concerned about these churches that he planted. Paul then is also the centre of a riot in Ephesus and his message is threatened uh, because of the sale of these silver statues of the goddess Diana. And then finally Paul goes to Troas, again worried about the letter that he sent. Was it too harsh? Um, Titus um, does not appear as arranged. So Paul goes down to Macedonia to search for him. He encourages the churches and they collect money for Jerusalem as we mentioned earlier. And Paul and Titus finally meet and they speak of the good news that the severe letter had been taken as Paul intended. And then Paul writes 2 Corinthians, okay, which is full of joy. Uh, Titus takes this letter to prepare the church for Paul's third visit. And then finally, as a result after this, Paul writes the, book to, uh, the letter to the Romans, probably while he's in Corinth. Um, and then he plans to travel to Jerusalem. He was going to go via Syria, but a plot that he's made aware of forces him to return through Macedonia. And then Paul 
heads on down. And stopping at the beach at Miletus to bid the Ephesian elders farewell. And then they come, they arrive back in Jerusalem. Now, when they're back in Jerusalem, there's a, a bit of an uproar. And they get there. And um, first of all, Paul is warned not to go, but he does go. Uh, he's welcomed by the church, but the Jews recognize him. They try and kill him. As a result of this, the Roman troops arrest Paul. And then he announces that he's a, a Roman citizen. Uh, and that causes a, a real stir. Uh, they learn of the plot to kill Paul. And so he's sent down then to Governor Felix. And then we see the remainder of the book. These, uh, these hearings of Paul before the Sanhedrin, first of all, before Felix, Festus, and then Agrippa. And then as a result of this, after this period of time, Paul makes appeal to Caesar. So he's sent on his journey um, finally to Rome, which is where the, kind of the book ends for us. Um, Paul, they come across, uh, they stop um, at this uh, place, Fairhavens. They want to get round the coast a little bit more for the winter, but the wind and the storm blows them out to sea and they end up getting shipwrecked uh, and they end up uh, at Malta, which is uh, uh, where Bob Cornuke, uh, did some diving and they've discovered the four anchors that were cut off of the boat again just historical verification of these things but finally from there they make their journey all the way up into Rome so we're there what are the lessons that we learn from the book of Acts well God can take a weak fisherman he can take a Christ hater like Paul he can take a single church like we had in Jerusalem at the start and change a generation in fact, it's changed the world. How? Well, Zechariah 4.6 really is probably one of the best summaries. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Tozer said, If the Holy Spirit were to withdraw himself from the church today, 95% of what we do would go right on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit would have withdrawn himself from the church in the book of Acts, 95% of what they were doing would have come to a screeching halt and everybody would have known the difference. And that's the challenge to you and I this morning. You know, are we trying to do things in our own strength or are we allowing the Holy Spirit to take the lead? You see, the acts of the Holy Spirit, as I said, didn't stop at the end of chapter 28 or at the end of the first century. For us, the book of Acts should be a call to arms. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and lord let it be a challenge to us father as we see that you have provided the power through your holy spirit that we need to go and to be witnesses for you to accomplish these greater works and so lord just fill us afresh with the power of your holy spirit we pray today that we may live and work to your praise and glory let us be witnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ, the one whom we know personally, and may we represent him to this world. Lord, give us the power of your spirit and your strength and your wisdom as we go from here this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.